Welcome to Encountering Beauty, a series of podcasts brought to you by Masterpiece London. I'm Thomas Marks, editor of Apollo magazine, and in these podcasts we'll be exploring the enduring relevance and resonance of what have long been some of the most revered and versatile materials that artists have had at their disposal. In each conversation I'll be joined by two art dealers who exhibit at the leading art fair that is Masterpiece London experts in different artistic fields that nevertheless share particular materials between them. We'll explore everything from ceramic to wood, from pigments to precious stones, discussing how artists have handled, worked and transformed these materials and why they're prized by collectors today. Today we'll be hearing about why artists have been so drawn to bronze for thousands of years. Around the world and in many different formats, bronze has been a material that is notoriously difficult to work with and yet has rarely been out of fashion. I'm delighted to be joined by Martin Clist, Managing Director of Charles Eade in London, one of the world's leading dealerships for works of ancient art from Egypt, Greece and the Roman Empire, and by Peter Osborne of Osborne Samuel, one of London's leading dealers in modern British painting and sculpture. It's great to have both of you with me. Hi. Hi. Let me start by asking both of you, as we delve into this enormous subject of bronze, what makes the material so fundamental to the fields that each of you specialises in? Martin? Well, I think for me, one of the qualities of it is its ubiquity. It's in essence everywhere. It's very widespread geographically, but it's also extremely versatile and very adaptable. So we see it in all sorts of areas where you don't necessarily other materials. You could see it in a perfume flask. You could see it in a mirror. You see it as chariot fitment, arms and armor, coinage, sculptures, large, small, and temple situations. So that's that's one of the interesting things for, for me. So so that's interesting. You find it all across the types of objects that you deal in. Peter, what about for you, for modern British artists, how fundamental has bronze been? Absolutely fundamental. I mean, there are <clears throat> key points that come to mind. Durability, tactility, and faithfulness to the original concept of the artist. It's as close as you're going to get in bronze casting to how the artist actually envisaged his or her creation in the first place. It's interesting with bronze that the material itself is man-made, usually we'd call bronze some version of a copper alloy, and that it's a material that in a sense can be reproduced or is used to reproduce other models in other materials. So unlike, say, something made out of gold, it's not, a, it's not a raw material, is it? Martin, I wonder if you could specify any particular objects that first drew you to this mysterious material. Well, I think it's in the always sculpture. But then many of the everyday pieces that we have will have sculptural elements. So you may find a, an early Greek mirror, but the handle of that mirror is as either a young maiden or a, or a naked youth. And so what I particularly like about the bronze is how handleable it is. And it's very often in the context that we have it, relatively small. So it's very human scale. I mean, obviously, there are, from the ancient world, large bronzes still remaining life-size over life-size figures. But for what we deal in, so much of it you can hold in your hand and turn it and twist it around in a way that you perhaps really can't with a lot of marbles, for instance, and it's the variety of the sculpture is greater than, say, glass, which you don't really see glass sculptures. You see medallions and glass vessels and so on. So as a material, that sculptural quality and how you can hone into it 
to see the detail. It holds detail in a way that some of the stone sculptures really don't. Martin, would you say that then in these small scale sculptures that we can say that bronze was almost quite an everyday material in some parts of the ancient world? Yeah, it was. I mean, that's coming back to the earlier point I made about its ubiquity. You could find it everywhere. You could find it in the gym. You could find it as a nail. You could find it as coinage. You could find it as huge, impressive sculptures outside. You also found them as small devotional sculptures. In Roman homes, they had the Dolares, the La figure, which was the god that looked after the house. And he'd have his own little niche where he would be looked after and he'd look after you as a result of that care. And yet I suppose there's a contrasting tradition, at least an art historical one, in which the monumental bronzes, certainly of ancient Hellenistic Greece, are seen as one of the great starting points of the tradition of, of Western sculpture. You're certainly probably not going to find on the market anything by, by Phidias, are you? No, no, not really. And there's all sorts of attempts to put names to sculptures. Um, Lysippus or Phidias, I think, the, the horses in San Marco in Venice. I think somebody has sort of said they're probably by Lysippus. They're almost certainly not. But people like that idea of giving an artist's name to a piece. For of course, we in the ancient world, there weren't really artists in the way we understand them. They were much more craftsmen or artisans who were working, working together. And obviously some of them were immensely skilled. And these large <coughs> sculptures that you mentioned earlier on, the extraordinary thing about them is the large ones nearly all come out of the sea because they're shipped from shipwrecks. And they were either being transported as loot from one conqueror to back home or sometimes they were literally being taken to be melted down. And the greatest of these big sculptures have generally been found in the sea. It's an odd way of surviving. I suppose things being found in the sea is one reason why, in the 20th century at least, when a number of them have been discovered, bronze has retained some of its mystery. But, but of course, it, it must have been a mysterious material for some of the sculptors whose work you deal in too, Peter. There, there must have been something perhaps magical about it as a material? Well, I think it's a very magical material. I'd actually just like to pick up on something Martin said, is that I've got a sculpture by Phidias in my garden. And, <laughs> and this came about because the Pangolin Foundry, who are the greatest bronze foundry in the country at the moment, they happened to know where a plaster cast taken of the Cellini horse's head from the Parthenon, which is in the British Museum. Somebody had taken a plaster cast, I think, many, 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 many years ago. And so I commissioned a bronze from that plaster cast. It's a very faithful, but the point is, that's a piece of garden sculpture, but it's still a very accurate version of what was there in the first place. So bronze has this timeless quality. It isn't of any particular time. And so artists working in clay, modeling in plaster, needed something more durable. Bronze solved that problem. It wasn't so much the problem of being able to reproduce and make more than one of the same thing, it was the fact that here you had, you had a transition, a faithful transition, thanks to molding and lost wax and so forth, into something which was as good as the original matrix created by the artist. And that is completely timeless, very durable, and provides the artist with, if you like, the facility to, particularly with the monumental sculpture, outdoor sculpture, to provide something which will last for a very long time. And that is just about the only way of doing it. I think one of the things I like about bronze is that it persists. And it's this idea of durability. And going back slightly to the magical thing, 
something with the bronzes that come from antiquity is that during their long burial conditions, strange things can happen to the bronze, that they can erupt, that they will change color, that their surface will, will change, even the sort of density of the metal will change. So there's something you could suggest there's something magical going on there. Obviously, these results were never meant to be, but nonetheless, they can, sometimes they can damage and in fact destroy the work, but a lot of the time they can add something to the piece that was never really intended. So in our area, we see green as the surface colour nearly all the time. Of course, that's just the burial conditions. But there's a, there's a tactility which comes directly from the original model. It just came into my mind now. I was lucky enough to know Henry Moore. And he would model sitting in his maquette studio, resting his arms on his armchair. And he would take the weight of the clay with his fingers underneath and then model with his thumbs on the front. So if you look at a Henry Moore maquette now and you look at the back of, say, a sitting figure, which he may have modelled in clay in the palm of his hands, you will see the slight indentation caused by his fingers where they took the weight whilst he was applying pressure from the front. And that's something which is so perfect, so intimate, but yet, thanks to bronze, is totally durable. And it's also one of the curious things because we see the finished bronze sculpture. It's very hard and very durable and and a solid surface. And yet, of course, in the ancient world, most of these were made out of wax to start with. So you get the softness of the wax. You get the ability to... A lot of sculpture is sort of subtractional, where you're carving away at a piece of stone. But with the wax, if you've made the face too small, you can add a bit more wax and smooth it around a bit. And, and although the, you know, the result of the bronze you know, has this extreme solidity, it's been able to be so gently carved, so precisely carved in a way, and it takes such detail because of the hardness of the bronze. Although the result is the hardness of the bronze, it's the softness of the wax, or the terracotta in Henry Moore's case, that gives it this sensuality and this ability to manipulate the medium. So you can have extremely polished, say, flesh, and very intensely incised hair for instance on the same thing so you have these holding it you get these wonderful contrasts i suppose for some of the modern british sculptors who peter you have handled types of roughness as well were sometimes the thing that bronze could create i'm thinking perhaps of kenneth armitage or elizabeth frink very good examples both and again just came into my mind reg butler reg butler would model in plaster, his big sculptures in the 50s and the 60s. But he would always, when he had nearly finished a sculpture, take a pot of black or brown paint and paint the plaster with it. Why? Because he needed to know how that would translate into bronze. So the sculptor may be starting, well, is starting obviously in a different medium, but a sculptor will have that in mind. And you have Lynn Chadwick, who I I knew very well and and watched at work for many, many, many years. Lynn would work with plaster and stolid, which was a hard-drying iron filings and plaster mix. And he would then scrape back the armature. But again, when it came to the discussion with the foundry as to how this work made in plaster would come out into the real world, many, many hours were spent debating patinas and treatments and how you can replicate the roughness in the finished article. So what came from the foundry in the end, in bronze, very durable, very strong, was as close as possible to the artist's original intention. 
we've talked a bit about technique and I suppose one of the things about bronze is that it's a technique that, like certain types of printing techniques in which there are positive and negative and positive versions in the process, it can be quite difficult for people to fathom. Do, do you think that the, the complications of making bronze are one of the things that lends it it's so much gravitas and, and kudos in the eyes of, of historical and current collectors, Martin? Possibly. I mean, I, I find the way that these things are cast and who first thought of doing this? I mean, how did this come into creation, this way of casting bronze? And I think I think in the, the earliest sort of what we would term bronze implements, really, things made out of bronze, probably actually made from raw copper or copper that's got a little bit of tin or arsenic in it. And they were hammered out. And this is from about the 7th millennium BC, but I think it was only sort of the 4th millennium BC that we begin to get firm evidence that they would start that they were casting bronze. There is something magical about this where you in essence you have a, a core, you put your wax over it, you carve your wax, and then in essence putting in some sprues and things, it's covered in a in, in like clay and baked and the wax disappears at this point and then you fill that gap, you fill that hole with, with molten bronze. It's a complex thing to have discovered. And I find, I mean, in essence, that must have been magical, whoever first came up with these things and then decided, actually, we can make them more and more complex. So by Hellenistic times, you have really quite complicated sculptures being created. I think it's, in that respect, extraordinary material. And Peter, you mentioned Pangolin Foundry. I suppose one thing that bronze often reminds us is how much sculpture is a collaborative enterprise. I think that's a very good point. And, and certainly my experience with the great foundries like Pangolin is that essence of collaboration between the artist and the foundry is an intrinsic part of the work of art. And without the foundry, the artist could never hope, in most cases, to ever create the final bronze, bronze sculpture. So Lynn Chadwick, for example, would be in debate with the foundry all the time. And he would be looking at the patinas, he would be comparing the results. And even now, the artists who work at Pangolin, they go there and it is a collaboration with Rongwe and the other people at the, at the foundry to get the right result. And it, it does take time to get it right because bronze is not always predictable. Because is that also a sense of the artist challenging the foundry? Here's the model of what I want to create in bronze, but also the foundry challenging the artist okay. and saying, you can't do that because these are the limitations of bronze. Absolutely. It reminds me of something like in another medium, Carlo Scarpa going into the Venini furnaces in Venice on Murano and saying, I need to, to make this. How can you do it? And the give and take of what might be possible, what might be imagined, what the material will allow. Is that, is that relevant for the artist that, that you handle? It's completely relevant, and and that and that can be a battle. It's not always a battle that's won by either side. The artist is determined to have a particular result. The foundry says no, or the foundry says to the artist, "You really should be thinking along these lines because that's going to give you a better result." An artist I can think of went to a foundry once and said he wanted to put coins into the plaster just before the mold was taken, but when the bronze was cast, he wanted to be able to polish those coins on the bronze sculpture so that the detail was as perfect as the coin was in the first place. This is this is one of the complications of trying to imagine how you make bronze. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to picture what, you, what, what this even would entail. But to give them great credit, the foundry did it. It can be done. 
I suppose you've talked about endurance and, and persistence. We've focused so far largely on Western artistic traditions. How far do each of you, when you've been looking at bronzes from your field, also think about the possibilities of the medium in, in other fields? Bronze has been cast or molded in ancient China, in prehistoric cultures. There are many bronze artifacts from West Africa or, or brass ones, certainly. Once you become a bronze addict, do you, do you feel like you, you start to want to know about all of it? I'm not sure I'm an addict as such, but I worked for um, Rossi and Rossi, who deal with a lot of sculpture from the, the Himalayas and so on. And one tends to think of them being perhaps rather primitive, but we're utterly and utterly, utterly wrong if we think that the sculptures that they were be, that they were producing immense complex sculptures with immense detail wonderful that was a real something i really learned that you know, it's so easy to dismiss things which are not necessarily close in your vision i come from i mean i've worked in the ancient art world for approaching 25 years but i've also worked in the contemporary world and i've worked with artists like michael sandal for instance and i've worked showing the bronze sculptures of site Twombly. It's it's fascinating to me how this material is interpreted and, and used by different by the different artists. And to go back, just this sense that it remains constant as a material. It's as vital a material now for you know, I worked at Waddington, so there was Barry Flanagan always around. You know, there's this material which goes back Nine thousand years at least of, of creating stuff. It still has this immense vitality and this this immense tactility. It has a there's there is this wonderment about it that perhaps some of the other materials don't don't have. For me, it contrasts with gold or silver, which have become very precious and so on. This the bronze that is there is wonderful. With the sort of mythologies of Vulcan's forge and other things similar. Is it in some ways, has it sometimes been taken to be quite a macho material? Peter, I suppose Frink and Hepworth worked in very different ways with bronze. They did, but I think let's take the example of Henry Moore's sort of almost breakthrough post-war in America, where the ability to make, to enlarge and make monumental bronzes, which were then placed outside corporate headquarters, in new office blocks in Chicago, New York, and elsewhere, undoubtedly contributed mightily to establishing Henry Moore's reputation. And to this day, there is something about the big bronze sculpture in your garden, which is a bit of a trophy. And one of my constant nightmares is dealing with the consequences of that in places like South Florida, where you, you acquire your big Henry Moore or your big Chadwick or your Flanagan or whichever artist it is, and you plonk it down in prime space in your garden next to your swimming pool, which means it's being sprayed with chemicals. You then have vicious winds blowing salt and sand off the ocean, which sandblast the patina. And so, so we have conservators down in South Florida who spend an awful lot of time working on the seaward side of sculptures and not so much time on the landward side of sculptures for that reason. But thanks to bronze and bronze's amazing durability, you can't, I was just saying this to somebody yesterday in my gallery, you can't do much harm to a bronze. Well, you can, but you can fix it. I suppose one might imagine 
someone coming to the ruins of the Florida coast in 2000 years time and finding this extraordinary green monument and this being in itself a new type of beautiful accidental natural patina. Yeah, which is being discovered. It is a problem. I mean, we've got, we put two nine foot high bronzes into the sea off the Northumberland coast and they are patinated with ship paint, the same paint you used to, and they've been there now for years with no maintenance at all. So you can't really do too much harm to a bronze. Martin, if a collector comes to you and they're interested in bronze, but they're sort of asking questions about condition and conservation and so forth, what what type of advice do you give them? Well, of course, bronze, it's subject to something called bronze disease, ancient bronze, which is a sort of brightly coloured bluey green turquoise efflorescence and when you begin to see that it appears the little tiny dots and they'll get bigger and bigger they will continue to get bigger until the bronze is entirely destroyed you just get a pile of powder and i've been in a few museums in italy small museums and they've got these 19th century labels and next to them there's just this gummy heap of nothing i mean so you have to be careful and there are several areas where i wouldn't recommend Anywhere where there's dampness, I wouldn't recommend people having ancient bronzes in these in damp areas. It can break out and it can be treated. It's relatively easy to treat and it's not an expensive treatment, but it's something you have to be you have to be aware of. You don't have to worry too much. It's not like we get a lot of glass being broken. Apparently it's always broken by the cleaning lady. You have less less of a problem with with ancient bronze, although it is, it can be more brittle, so an arm could snap off if it falls over and so on. So, and I remember a collector called Georges Ortiz, who was one of the great collectors, and he was a small, just bound up with energy and anger and frustration at the world. And I, I remember he showed me some of his sculptures once, and he became absolutely livid because I touched it. And did I have no respect? Did I, why was I not wearing gloves? And I said, well, you haven't given me any Georges, really. Give me your gloves and I'll, I'll wear them. So, yes, you, you, you do have to be careful. I think with modern bronze, perhaps less of a problem, provided the, the, the sculptures are well made. I think that's a point worth making. Big Particularly outdoor sculpture, has to be assembled. It has to be welded. It's not one big thing which comes out of the foundry intact. And those wells have to be very good. And, and that aspect of, of bronze casting is really important. And I can think of one example. I placed a very, very monumental Chadwick in a big um, office block in Tokyo years ago. And I got a call six months later at a gallery in Tokyo and the gallery had a call saying it's bleeding at the top of the leg. And bleeding is when something's gone wrong with the composition inside and eventually it finds its way through cracks, usually where the welds are. And, and it's looking horrible. What can you do? So we had no choice but to bring the sculpture, the Chadwick sculpture back to England, back to the foundry where they have to take the leg off to find out what the problem is. And they duly took the leg off of this enormous sculpture, and inside the leg, they found a thermos flask and a lunchbox, which had clearly belonged to somebody who left his lunch there, and somebody else came along and completed the weld work, and that caused the problem, you know, three, four, five years later on. And that's an unusual example, quite a funny one, but on the whole, a good quality foundry, like a pangolin foundry, wouldn't let something like that happen. Well, I think we'll end it there at the bronze hospital, or at least with the bronze that contains its own picnic. (laughs) 
Let me say thank you very much to Martin Christ of Charles Eden, and Peter Osborne of Osborne Samuel for sharing their expertise. It's been great to have both of you with me. Great pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Encountering Beauty, a podcast brought to you by Masterpiece London. Masterpiece Online takes place from the 23rd to the 27th of June, and the fair will return to the Royal Hospital Chelsea in the summer of 2022. Head to www.masterpiecefair.com for more information.